Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you open it to Psalm 84? This is a psalm that talks about um, longings. In fact, I've entitled the talk, Craving After God. What does the word uh, crave mean to you guys? When, when I say the word crave, what does it mean? Uh, what's that? Desire. What are some other words? There's a whole bunch of synonyms. Excuse me? Wanton. Ooh. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds cool. What does wanton mean? Oh, well, that's, that's easier. You might want to speak up uh, and articulate a little clearer. I've always, I have heard that term wanton lust. What is, I still want to know what wanton means. <laughs> All right, let's keep moving. Um, you know, there's words like yearning and, and longing and desire, all those different pieces to it. The ancients, when they talked about craving or, or yearning, they talked about it as in terms of affections of the heart. What were the things that were, were drawing your affection? When I think of cravings, I think of things like, um, okay, don't judge me. Ready? You're wondering what I'm going to say right now, huh? A sushi. I think of sushi. Now, you might think that's odd, but I have this weird thing. I can go to a sushi bar, and I can never have enough of it. It's the weirdest thing. I can just go and eat it and eat it. And honestly, my wife and I have had these conversations like, okay, let's think about this. How many of these do you have to put in your mouth for it to be enough? Right? When you're eating something and you really like it, how many times do you have to taste that taste for it to be satisfactory? And in my world, when it comes to sushi, until there's no more room, you just have to keep putting in and putting in. The funny part, it's like candy, and you can't stop. It's just, does anybody else feel that way? about? You guys are looking at me like I'm totally weird. Yeah, thank you for the four of you that raised your hand. <laughs> Cravings, however, have a dark side, right? If cravings are not married or wedded to temperance, what you end up with is what in our culture? You end up with addiction. And addiction, uh, Americans are very familiar with addictions. We're addicted people. And I don't want to beat us up on this, but we're addicted to all sorts of things. What are some of the primary addictions out there? Caffeine. Okay, that's one of the good ones. That's like Baptist beer. <laughs> okay, what else? TV? Pornography? Drugs? What is it? I'm sorry. Status, good. Spending. We're addicted, some are addicted to power. What else? There's a whole bunch. How about uh, anything related to the internet besides pornography? Facebook. Raise your hand if you feel like you're dabbling with an addiction to Facebook. It's okay. I'm, I'm there. I mean, I overdo it occasionally. What else? 
Anybody addicted to gaming? Not, you don't have to confess right now, but do you think there's anybody gifted, addicted to gaming? Work. Okay. There's an honest person. Did you hear that one? Food. Okay, Psychology Today, two years ago, did a study. The seven most difficult addictions to break. Here they are. You ready? I feel like David Letterman. Number seven, cocaine. Most difficult or most difficult addictions to quit. These are in reverse order, by the way. Number six, alcohol. If you're addicted to alcohol, it's one of the most difficult addictions to break. Number uh, five, now this might surprise you, but it's probably a broader category, Valium, prescription drugs. Many, many people who are are addicted to prescription drugs have a very difficult time breaking that. Number four, heroin. Number three, cigarettes. If you've ever tried to break the, the addiction of smoking cigarettes, it's very difficult. Number two, ready? What do you think number two is? Food, potato chips. That's what the article says. That's potato chips. That's really fattening food. We live in a, a, a culture that is addicted to food. We can confess here for a moment. How many of you feel like you're, you use food as entertainment? Come on, everyone raise your hand. We entertain ourselves with food. Okay. Number one. What's number one? Methamphetamines. Nice, nice guess, but wrong. I don't want to, like, you know, I mean, I, I affirm you for that effort. But you were wrong. <laughs> what else? What, what? Sugar, that would be under the food one. Anger, nice try. Wrong again. Eh. You're not going to get this one. Texting. <laughs> I just received a text. Okay, here it is. Ready? Love. Love. That's, this, is a, this is the study from Psychology Today. And you're probably going, what the heck? And, and as I read it, this is what they said. There have been more murders and more suicides related to love than any, any other addiction in the history of humanity. As a matter of fact, there's even research that says in romantic love, the same types of things that happen in your brain... They're parallel to the idea of when you take actually a chemical. So love. Now, the question I have is, what can we infer from this study? There's lots of things we can infer. But one thing I'm going to suggest that we infer is that there's something inside of each one of us that longs. The desires that crave something outside of ourselves, something transcendent. I would say we're hardwired with this desire to long, to to hope, to to crave something. The question that probably needs to be asked is why is there so much craving in the area of addiction? If we're gonna if we're if we feel comfortable with the inference that we are we have this innate longing, uh, I think it's a natural step to look at the text because the psalmist actually recognized that. He, he was no stranger to this idea of craving. If you look at the text, it starts with this statement. Psalm 94, verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. 
My soul yearns. It faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. So the psalmist captures this idea of yearning. He uses the word, my soul yearns, and it, it, my, my soul cries out. It craves, it faints. If, if we look at other verses in scriptures, you realize in Psalm 42, it says, as the deer pants for the stream, so my soul longs after you. It's that idea of deep inner craving. There's a, there's a passage in Psalm 63 that says this, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life itself. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of food. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Now, I don't know if you catch that, but those are a lot of emotive words. I mean, it's it's very different than the controlled, meted-out Christianity that many of us live. He understood this idea that there's something deep inside me that can only be satisfied with God. And I would suggest to you that part of the problem is, part of the problem is that we're in this Greek lineage. There's There's a lot of writing that talks about the two lineages that we have as Christians. There's the Greek or Hellenistic lineage, which is reasoned and rational, and then we have the Hebraic lineage, which, which is more holistic and, and actually freer with emotion. And in this text, what we're doing is we're catching a glimpse of our Hebrew brothers and sisters as they view their relationship with God. There's something inside of each one of us that longs. I mean, even philosophers have talked about this. One of uh, the evangelicals' church's favorite children, C.S. Lewis, uh, talks about this a ton in the idea of the sinsuk, this this longing for joy. He writes uh, in the preface to um, his book uh, *Pilgrim's Regress*. He writes this: "The soul was was excuse me, the soul was made to enjoy some object that is never fully given." nay, cannot even be imagined as given in our present mode of subjective temporal experience. See, Lewis believed that if there's a God in whose image we are made and in whom we live and move and have our being, Acts 17, then it would stand to reason that, it would, that we would have this longing or built-in craving for joy. He puts it, this, writes this in another place. He says this, If I find in myself a desire which... No experience in this world can satisfy the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I was made naturally to crave something. That's why Solomon Ecclesiastes says, all things are made beautiful in your time, and you have placed eternity in our hearts. So it's completely natural for you to crave, for you to long, for you to hope for something greater. But unfortunately, we are trained to subdue that. To subjugate it. 
I can remember looking at, uh, in my mind, I've got this picture of a tract that someone gave me. It was from Campus Crusade, and it, it, it had this train, and there was an engine and a car and a caboose, and it was like this. What, does anybody remember that? Anybody, what, what, was the, what was the engine? Fact. The car was faith, and then the caboose was feeling. And really what they were trying to do is making sure we don't drive our lives by our emotions, but in what happened, maybe inadvertently, is it pushed our emotions into some other realm and didn't give us the freedom to actually live fully in as our heritage would. To long, to crave, to hope. It's kind of like uh, we have these two family streams. One is Spock, and one is Captain Kirk. You know, do you see the difference? Spock is hmm, going to reason everything and not emote, and Kirk can't help but emote. You know, <laughs> I think I think we're both of those people. And when we read these texts, you you definitely see it. The problem today is that, and even in people in the church, is there, we are attempting to satisfy that craving with with wrong means with drugs and food and pornography and sex and acquisition and fantasy, and you go on. Even here, this morning, many of us are craving many, many things to soothe ourselves, to soothe our soul, to fix things that we can't figure out how to fix. Can I just ask you to do this for a moment? Could you just think, Hey, listen, when, when no one's looking and when you're alone with your heart with God, what, what are some of the things that your heart starts to crave? And I'm not asking you to say it out loud. I'd like you to think about it, though, because I don't know if we can actually think about this text appropriately if we don't actually get in touch with the idea that there are things that are vying for the attention of our soul and for the allegiance of our soul. Maybe you're struggling with addiction right now. find yourself in this place where I just don't feel I can get out. I'm craving, but I'm craving wrong things. And it's injuring me, and it's injuring the people around me. If we look at the text, um, we see that the psalmist didn't try to subjugate the craving. What the psalmist did was he redirected the craving. He redirected it. And you have to understand, it says in the, here in the text, it says, how lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. And he talks about this place where the sparrow finds a home and the, to have her young and so forth. And it says in verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Now, you have to get what's going on here. Um, they, they, were, they were directing this affection toward God, toward his, toward his dwelling place. And in the Old Testament context, God designated his temple, the temple where he would show. If you wanted to meet God, you would go to the temple. There, were, there was all these implements and all these different things, and it was a specific geographic location where he said that he could be experienced. So the hope of every worshiping Jew was to go to the temple to hopefully catch a glimpse, hopefully experience the presence of the Almighty God. Consequently, for many, there was an earnestness and a passion about the enterprise of temple worship. 
The psalm that we're looking at really reflects that. But really, if you go beneath the surface of that, what they're talking about is they wanted to go to the temple not just to see the building. They wanted to go to the temple for what? To experience the presence of God. They wanted to experience God. And I, I, I know this. I, I, I'm, I'll stake my life on it that, that all those cravings that we grapple with and wrestle with, if you go beneath those, that's the, that is the craving that your soul has as well. is to encounter the presence of God, the internal longing toward him. It says in verse 4, they're ever praising. Now, in, in the text, if we look at it closer, the next section here, it talks about this idea of uh, if we actually do encounter God, there is, if we encounter his presence, we have renewal of our heart. If you look at verse 5, it says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion, before each appears before God in his presence. In other words, there's this pilgrimage to the temple. And it says, as you go, there's certain things that come with this pilgrimage. And in essence... He is saying, I want to move toward you. I'm going to pass through this valley of weeping and sadness. And there's going to be a spring as I encounter you. That's what it says in Isaiah chapter 61, where the author says, And provide for those, I will provide for those who grieve in Zion, in my presence, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. As as we actually encounter God, if we actually do, if we do get close, if we encounter, recognize his presence, what happens is, according to the text, there's strength. In fact, strength built upon strength. But it doesn't say you're not going to go through stuff. That's the part we have to get. You're going to go through the valley. The valley of weeping, even. but you're passing through, you're on a journey, you're on a pilgrimage to Zion. I love that imagery because, uh, depending on your age, everybody goes through the Valley of Bacaw. I mean, you have, some might not have actually had to go through, trudge through there yet because of your age, but you're going. I can guarantee you you're going. There's going to be sadness. There's going to be brokenness. I got a... <laughs> I got a, uh, an email this last week from a good, good friend of mine in Santa Barbara. He, he runs a thing called the Euphysi Project. You've heard me talk about him before. He, he runs a ministry to, um, he calls them Friends Without Homes. When he first started, he just went over to Pershing Park and uh, fed a couple homeless men. And those two men were Gator and Shaky. Um, over time, Gator and Shaky became kind of the gatekeepers for the Pershing Park project that he was doing. And over time, he was feeding over 200, he still does, feeds over two, uh, almost 200 people a night in Pershing Park, or on Wednesday night at Pershing Park. Has this huge potluck and feeds people. In fact, he told me that um, there's Gator, who was kind of the 
the clown guy. He was the leader, and then Shaky was was really the straight guy uh, as far as the jokes. And he, he Shaky would call Jeff the Spaghetti Man. And uh, this last week, he wrote me this morning, so I'm a little taken by this whole thing. Last week, Shaky died in the park. And he wrote me, he says, he's no longer called Shaky. He's now Timothy. That's his real name. He's Timothy before God with dignity and honor. And he went through this thing. Listen, for some people, that, that ultimate arrival in Zion might be the time they stop breathing. But this morning, now in eternity, Shaky, Timothy, is living in the presence, the, the ultimate presence of Jesus. There's such power. I mean, there's other stories. I, I, I'd ask Brian and Kalia if you guys would share a little bit. I know many of us have been tracking with little Ella and what's been going on, and, and um, I think it's fair to say you guys have gone through the Valley of Weeping, right? You want to come up? You guys can both come up, and I don't know who's... Okay, Brian, why don't you come up? Just share a little bit of the story, and we're going to um, project a few pictures for you as well. Well, for those who, who don't know, um, Ella came home on Thursday after 70 days and 70 nights. Um, and, yeah, we can, we can really identify with the Valley of Weeping. Um, I'll, I'll never uh, forget after the first week on, on Thursday when the doctors called us all in and... and the, the whole family came in, and basically they were saying, um, to what extent do you want us to resuscitate Ella? And to tell us how painful that would be for her. And, um, and we were asking, what does this mean? Are you guys throwing in the towel? What, what's going on here? And, and they said... Um, no, we're not throwing in the towel, but Ella's going to make the decision when when she decides to go. And it was at that moment they left us as a family to kind of deal with this. And and uh, Eric, uh, my son-in-law, threw himself threw himself on the floor, just crying out to the Lord and just with his hands held out and we were all just um, we were a mess we were all just weeping and crying and I was I was saying to to my kids you guys I would do anything to trade places with Ella um, just so that she could be here with us and at that moment Eric got up and he had this this smile on his face that I'll never forget. And what was so incredible at that moment was was Eric and Krista both coming up to me, laying their hands on me and and comforting me. And and it was at that moment, you know, you can always look back where you were when certain major events have happened in your life. You know, people often say, where were you when John F. Kennedy was shot? And people that were around then can identify where they were. And um, 
I will look back at this moment as the turning point because it was at that moment that this peace came over Eric and ended up coming over all of us that that Ella did not belong to us. Ella was belonged to the Lord. She was she was God's baby. She was God's child. And uh, it was the day after that that her heart shrunk considerably, and that um, from that moment on, those next nine weeks was a steady climb up. We were singing today how we don't have anything to boast in, and and we don't have anything to boast in in any of this. Um, because it was all God. The doctors have told us we don't know why. We know why. <laughs> the doctors don't know why her heart got better and why it remodeled itself. They have no idea why. They just are grateful that it happened. And so, yeah, we've been in that valley of weeping where we're crying out to God and where we're... I can remember every morning when before I'd leave for work and my wife and I were reading the Psalms were incredibly helpful to us through this time. And we'd be reading in the Psalms and we'd just be weeping and crying and begging and pleading, yearning, craving, craving for for Ella to be with us. And and at the end of every prayer we would we would always say, Lord, not our will, but your will. Your will be done, God. And we would continually, every day, daily, give her over to the Lord because she is the Lord's. We're just so grateful, though, that um, we're so grateful that the desire we had to have her here was kind of on the same page with the Lord. And, and we're humbled and grateful and honored and um, in awe of the miracle that is Ella. And so, anyway, this was all off the cuff. <laughs> so, but. As we're moved into God's presence, we have transformation and. Again, I love Brian's tender, humble embrace of the situation because we we don't know how it all works out, but we know that we move through and as we encounter God's presence, he meets us there. I need to to move to the end of this and and say this psalm ends with a plea. Um, It says, hear my prayer in verse 8. Lord God Almighty, listen to me, God of Jacob. Look on our shield, O God. Look for with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield, and the Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. In essence, he's asking this. Allow me to recognize and enjoy your presence. And then he says this. And we sing it occasionally, and most of the time it's, it's too familiar to even think about. But he says, better is 
one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. It's better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to enjoy all of the appetites of creation. It's really what he's saying. The problem, I think, is we don't believe that. We haven't come to the grips that that ultimate longing that we have can only be met. It's like Blaise Pascal said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in us, and it can only be met through, uh, through Jesus Christ. And there's no way we can avoid this as Christians. But we constantly try to assuage that, that brokenness in our lives with other means. I told Robbie the other day, I think I want to win the Mega Millions. And she looked at me and says, do you think that would really make you feel better? It would make you have joy? My response was, no, I just still want to win it, though. <laughs> See, the, the, the issue is we agree, we consent, we think that's right, that yes, longing for God is the ultimate thing for our life, but what happens is in real time, we think it's a disequal proposition. Yes, I want that, but I really want all this other stuff too. I want to live myself, my life this way. And in verse 10, it talks about this ultimate value. A little story I heard just a short time ago, um, the story of a, a man who loved books. This is, he met an acquaintance who had just thrown away a Bible that had been stored in his attic of the ancestral home of his, for generations, said, I couldn't read it, the friend explained. Somebody named Guten something had printed it. And the guy says, not Gutenberg. The book lover exclaimed in horror. The Bible, that Bible is one of the first books ever printed. Uh, why a copy just sold for over $2 million. Francis was unimpressed. He says, well, mine wouldn't have brought a dollar. Some fellow named Martin Luther had scribbled all over it in German. What we're really getting at is price tags. And we've been schooled or discipled in putting certain price tags on things, right? You have created a value system for your life. And ours is to come to the grips that there is actually a recalibration that has to happen that is true good and truly satisfying. That's why we pray the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Listen. If you really pray that prayer outside of just rote, what you're asking for is your life and the way that your work, life works out to be in alignment or in the direction of his ultimately fulfilled kingdom. So as we look at the stuff that we buy and the stuff that we use and the people we encounter, essentially we have to have a directional flow of his kingdom. We want to live toward that end. That's really how we have to value our life appropriately. Now, I have to say this, and I'm going to close with this. Um, when we talk about words like yearning and craving and longing and desire, it can often connote desperation. Uh, my early Christianity was um, in and out of the Pentecostal movement, and there was, there was language around this desperate longing for God, like we're not going to be able to ever encounter him. In fact, it was described to me one time is that you have to long for him so much like you stick your head under water and you, 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 
you just hold yourself there until something just has to give. That's how much you have to love for, long for God. And, and it, that's, that's this strange desperation. I don't think that's what the psalmist is getting at, honestly. Because if we move forward into the New Testament, Jesus said, Hey, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Desperation. Right? No. No, no, no. Jesus actually, we sang all these songs up here today about Jesus providing a pathway to Zion. A pathway to relationship with God. And oftentimes we still treat it like we have to work our way into this type of desperation for God. But the reality is, Jesus said, listen, church, come, come. Are you tired? Are you exhausted? Are you burdened? I will give you rest. And I will tell you this, that the the greats have said this. In fact, Augustine said this. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God alone. You will find restlessness in your heart until you discover that you only have that ultimate satisfaction in Jesus. This morning, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a sacrament, right? It's what we do all the time, and for many of you, you're just familiar. Yes, we get in line, I break out a piece of bread, I choose, oh, should I do wine? Or, uh, uh, I'll do that, and then I go back and get in, sit down. We never realize that this is an invitation. It's kind of like that verse where Jesus said, Come. Come, encounter my presence. And as you do, you have the privilege of moving from strength to strength. You may be in the middle of this valley of despair right now. I don't know. I mean, I know in a a crowd this size, there's got to be some people going through that. But I know by the word of God and by experience that as we we are touched, or as we encounter, as we move into that, then we actually are satisfied. We have a moment of satisfaction. We move from strength to strength. This morning, I invite you to come to communion different. Prepare your heart to encounter the presence of Jesus.